I'm so glad that we actually get to do what we get to do on Tuesdays. I'm so glad that we get to gather and study God's Word. And in particular, I'm so thankful that we know a God who reveals himself to us in his Word and that we don't worship a God of our own imagination. And aren't you just learning so much more through our study about who God is? Isn't it just bringing so much clarity to how, how awesome and how reverent and how holy he is? We see that so much in this lesson this week. In our leader circle, just, um, just a, the, in the last hour, there were moments where I felt like this sense of awe that came over us as we were just marveling at what our passage talks about this week and who God is and how he displayed himself to the Israelites. So I hope that tonight is encouraging for you. You know, um, there's a book that's called Soul Searching. It's by Christian Smith, and he actually makes a very interesting statement. He summarizes what's happening in our culture and what's happening in the churches in our, in our generation as far as how people are viewing God. And he says that most young evangelicals believe in what best could be described as a moral therapeutic deism or what he terms as the Santa Claus God. He says that moral, people, what people think of when they think of a moral God is they think of a God who just wants everyone to be nice, and so he rewards the good, and he um, punishes the bad, or he withholds from the bad. So that's how people see God in, a, in that moral way. Therapeutic, they see a God who just wants everyone to be happy, And then deism means that God is distant, that he's not involved in our daily lives. Maybe he gets involved occasionally, but then he disappears for periods of time. They believe that God functions more like an idea than a present being actively engaged in our world. And so according to Smith, he says that this is the version of God that is most prevalent in our culture and is is emerging in churches. And he says it's very quietly shaping how we view God. In fact, he says we can't grow in our relationship with God when we insist on relating to God as we think he should be rather than as who he truly is. He says that's why it's so important that, that we do what we do here, that we open the Bible, that we seek to know the God of scriptures, not the God of our imaginations. Because he says that embarrassingly our modern American God is an obese, jolly toy maker who only works one day a year. Isn't that sad? But that's not what we're doing here. We're opening the word and getting to know the God of the Bible. And today, what we're going to see is that God is holy. And he's approachable, but he's only approachable on his own terms, which we're going to see in this passage. And yet he's loving. He doesn't allow us to be ignorant about sin. Rather, he gives us his instructions for holy living so we know rightly who he is and we know rightly who we are in light of him. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments um, today. The Ten Commandments are like an instruction manual for human life. We are made in the image of God, and God, therefore, can speak to us about what goes well for our lives, and he gives us the Ten Commandments as instructions for us. But the commandments also do something else. They illuminate sin. They awaken us to our desperate need for righteousness. And they show us how time after time after time we fall short of God's holy standards. And yet, we must be righteous in order to approach a holy God. 
Thankfully, as we fast forward, we know that God provides Jesus Christ as the righteous one who not only saves us, who not only sets us free from the penalty of sin and death, but actually welcomes us into the presence of holy God, whom we now get to call Abba Father. So amazing that we're going to learn about God. We're going to see his holiness. We're going to see ourselves in light, which is as sinful people, but we're going to be Reminded that we are welcomed into the presence of our Father because of what Christ has done on the cross. It is such, such good news. And so today we're going to look at just two of the five chapters that you looked at in your lesson. We're going to look at Exodus 19, where we see how God prepares the Israelites for his appearance on Mount Sinai. And then we're going to look at Exodus 20, which is where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And what we're going to see is that God gives clear instructions to those who are prepared to listen. And so I've been praying that tonight we would be prepared to listen. Can you just think for a moment, is your heart open to the Lord tonight? Do you feel like you're ready to hear from him? Because I think he has something to speak into your heart this evening. And he has something to speak into my heart this evening through his word. So will we, will we be ready to hear? Let's talk about Exodus 19, because as we start this chapter, we find that the Israelites have just arrived at Mount Sinai. In chapter 9, in chapter 19, Exodus 19, it says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Ephraim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and then camped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain. If you look at this map, I don't have my pointer with me, but I'll point with my, the old-fashioned way. Do you see Rephidim is number six, kind of down there? And then number seven is the wilderness of Sinai. So that's where they have traveled to. They're, they're at location number seven, and probably even getting closer to eight. Oh, I got that wrong. Rephidim is seven, and they moved to eight. I, I, do you see that? Down there at the tip. Now, if you remember, back at the burning bush, when God had his first encounter with, with Moses, God told Moses that this is exactly where they would be, where all the people would be. It was in Exodus 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Well, now they're here at this mountain. It's the third month after leaving Egypt. So it's late May, early June, and they're going to stay camped in this spot for the next 11 months. God has actually redeemed his people exactly as he promised them. And now they are here at the mountain, just as he told them they would be. But now God is going to claim them as his own people. He is going to begin to enter into a covenant relationship with them. So here at the base of Mount Sinai, the Israelites are going to start to prepare to hear the voice of God. They're going to hear him speak in a personal way. He's going to give them a promise of blessing, and he's also going to give them instructions for how they're to live as a free people. They've never been free before. Now they've been redeemed out of Egypt. They've been brought to this mountain, and God is going to teach them how to be a free people. 
you remember the mountains, this is um, the Mount Sinai. It's actually a, a, a very massive, craggy group of mountains. Uh, it stretches 8,000 feet into the sky. And so imagine 2.5 million people are camped at the base of these mountains. This was God's preordained meeting place where he was going to meet with his people. And it's here that he is going to call his people now to a very special life. There's three calls that he's going to place on the, on the lives of the Israelites. The first thing that he's going to do is he's going to call his people to a life of maturity. Look at verse 3 and 4. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Seven times, Moses is going to go up on the mountain, and each time he's going to hear from the Lord, and he's going to come down, and he's going to tell the Israelites exactly what the Lord spoke to him. Now, the image that God is giving his people in this process is an image of spiritual maturity as they are being given the picture of what it's like to be carried on the wings of eagles or to be carried on eagles' wings. Moses actually writes about this later in Deuteronomy, and this is what he says in Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12. He says, He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. Notice how God is saying that he cared for his children. He cared for the Israelites much in the same way that, that a, a mama eagle cares for her baby eagles. He's saying that he encircled them. It's like he wrapped them up in a nest when they were in Egypt. He watched over them as they departed. He kept his eye on him. He had an eagle eye on his people. Remember, he heard their cries and he responded to them. Um, they were the apple of his eye. And then when the time came for the young eagle to fly, and in this happens in real life when young eagles are ready to fly, what the mama eagle does is she actually stirs up the nest. So she takes all of the soft hay and all of the down out of a nest, and pretty soon the baby bird is sitting on thorns and twigs, and it's uncomfortable. It's no longer comfortable for that baby. And that's how the mama eagle gets the baby ready to go. And that's what God did to his people. He stirred up their discomfort. Remember when they were in Egypt and Moses wanted to release them and, and Pharaoh made it harder on them. They had to work harder to make bricks and get their own hay. And pretty soon they're complaining. It's no longer comfortable. They're, they're ready to go. And that's what God was doing to them. And yet we know that it takes time also for a mama bird to teach her baby to fly. Just like it's going to take time now for God to make the Israelites his own people, to make them ready to fly with their faith. What a mama eagle will do, actually, is she'll, after the baby gets ready to fly, she'll take the baby and she'll fly up as high as she, as she can go, and then she'll drop the baby. <laughs> and the baby will fall towards the earth, and I'm sure its heart's pounding out of its chest, and it thinks it's just going to go splat on the ground. But then right before it hits the ground, the mama swoops down and catches the baby and brings him up, and the baby thinks he's safe until she goes up high again, and then she drops him again. And she does this over and over and over again until finally the baby begins to fly. 
Well, in the same way, God has put the Israelites in these very terrifying, free-falling kind of situations where how are they going to cross the Red Sea? And then God swooshes in and parts the water. What are they going to drink when the water's salty and bitter? And then God swoops in and provides fresh water. What are they going to eat? And then God swoops in and provides quail and manna. He's caring for them. He's carrying them on his wings. He is developing them and preparing them for a life of maturity, just the way an eagle prepares her young for a life of maturity as an eagle. Let me ask you, is God stirring up your nest tonight? Are you finding the the hay and the down is being removed and you're encompassed in a place that feels very uncomfortable? where you feel like God is moving you and you're not quite sure how or in what way, but you know that something's happening and it's not comfortable anymore. Or maybe you're feeling like you're in a free fall right now where, where everything's been, you've just been dropped and you're falling and you don't quite know where you're going to land. You don't know what's next. God is stirring up your life or he's putting you in a new situation that's calling for you to trust him, to cling to him, to to be trusting that you're being carried on his wings, that he has something that he's doing in your life, and he's growing you in your faith as you're trusting him in whatever it is that you're going through. Well, the second thing that God does is that he calls his people to a life of distinction. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So interesting because this is actually a repetition of the promise that God had made to Abraham. And now he's repeating it to Abraham's descendants these many years later. The Israelites have been chosen to be his treasured possession. It's not because they've done anything to deserve it. It's not because of anything in and of themselves. It's purely because God is loving and God is sovereign, and by his sovereign decision, he chose them. He set them apart to be his special people to do a work amongst all the peoples of the earth. They were told that they were going to be a special instrument of his blessing to the whole world. So when he talks about them being chosen as a kingdom of priests, that means that they were meant to be a showcase of God to all of the Gentile nations around them. They were going to show the whole world who the one true God is, and they were going to demonstrate that people who worship the one true God are blessed. That blessing was going to be evident in their life. And the second thing is, he says the Israelites were chosen to be a holy nation, so they were set apart. They were they were God set them apart. He actually began setting them ba- apart back in Egypt. Because remember, when the Egyptians were dealing with all the plagues and all the suffering, the Israelites were over in Goshen, completely protected. And so he was already displaying to the world that the Israelites are set apart in some special way. But now they're going to live as a holy people. They're going to be holy because their God is holy. And their holiness is going to be evident in their obedience to God's commands. Now the people, they hear this and they agree. They're like, yeah, we will do everything the Lord has said. We'll see about that. This actually becomes the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. It's a covenant where God says, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And of course the people say, oh, yes, well, we want to be blessed, so of course we'll obey. 
It's conditional. To the degree to which they do obey God, they will be blessed. The, to the degree in which they don't obey God, they will not be blessed. In fact, they will suffer greatly. But the third thing that God is doing is he's calling his people to a life of holiness. In chapter 19, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. So God is going to come down to the people in this dense cloud, and he is going to speak to them, and they're not going to be able to see him, but they're going to be able to hear his voice as he speaks to Moses. And what God is wanting the Israelites to know is that his commandments are from him. They're not from Moses. They're not man-made commandments. They're commandments from him. And they're going to get to witness that with their hearing. But first, he says, you have to prepare yourself to listen to me. So he tells the Israelites, you must get ready first to hear from me. And he gives them three preparations that they're to make in order to prepare themselves. The first thing that they need to do is they need to wash and change their clothes. Now, that's not hard for us. We just chuck our clothes into the washing machine or we just go in our closets and put on something fresh. But imagine being in the desert with 2.5 million people. How are you going to find clean clothes? It's a big ordeal to wash yourself, to prepare to be clean. There are no bathtubs. There are no closets full of fresh clothes. There's no dry cleaning. Clean, clean garments though, were to reflect a clean heart. And it was important. God was teaching them, in order to approach God, you had to be clean. The second thing is, he says, you have to maintain a distance from God. So we know God is holy. He's exalted. He's creator. He's sovereign. He's the maker and Lord. God's presence on the mountain, actually because he was on this mountain, it made the mountain holy. The mountain is not holy apart from God's presence. It's because he's there that the mountain is holy. So Moses actually had to erect barriers around the mountain in order to keep the people safe. God is teaching the people that there is actually a barrier between holy God and sinful man. That sinful man cannot approach holy God. And we see this throughout the whole Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are barriers constantly between people and God. There were fences around the tabernacle. There were veils in the Holy of Holies. Only the priests could go into the most holy places. So throughout the Old Testament, we see there's this separation between holy God and sinful man. Access was only granted into God's presence by an appointed means. And in fact, Moses could not just go up the mountain to see God unless God first called and invited him to do so. Anybody who crossed the barrier would die. This was serious business. God was holy and man is not. And then the third thing they had to do to prepare themselves was they had to endure a storm. Isn't that interesting? Look at verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Can you imagine what that would be like? 
one of our leaders in our leader circle shared about um, being outside when lightning struck just in her front yard and what it was like to hear the sound of the lightning and to see the brilliance of the lightning and to feel the power of that moment. Have you ever been in like a, a really intense mountainous thunderstorm where when that lightning cracks and that thunder roars, how terrifying it can be? And then imagine like Mount St. Helens blowing its top. Imagine an earthquake. If you've ever been in an earthquake, how frightening. I mean, all of these things, lightning, thunder, earthquake, fire, smoke, and trumpets. What an experience that would be. Amazing. And God is preparing his people to understand what is written in Proverbs 1-7, which is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He wants them to know that he is God and he is powerful and he is to be revered as holy. Before they're ready to receive the Ten Commandments, they need to be reminded of their own sinfulness in light of a holy God. You know, a healthy fear of God is a powerful deterrent to sin. If you really know who God is and how worthy he is of worship, it will be a powerful deterrent to sin. I want to pause here and give you a truth that I see in this passage, and that is that that God is approachable only on his terms. God is approachable only on his terms. In the Old Testament, God demanded separation between himself and his people because of the barrier of sin. But in the New Testament, God invites his people to draw near to him. And that's because of Jesus Christ. Jesus, whose name Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus has bridged that crevice between holy God and sinful man by the cross. And so by his death and resurrection, Jesus opened up the way for us to be in the presence of God, for all who believe and receive him as Savior, to to cross over, to be in the presence of God. It's amazing that we are invited into God, holy God's presence, not because we're not sinful, but because of what Christ has done for us. Now there's no more veil separating man from God. There's no more holy of holies. There's no longer a temple with a fence around it or a mountain with barriers set up. Through Christ, we are not only given eternal life, we are given access into the throne room of God. And we have that access every time we pray. Every time we quiet our hearts and we attune our minds to the Lord and we pray, we have access into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God. We have access to God because everyone who believes and receives him as Savior has the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. It's amazing. We have this kind of access through Christ. There is no more sin barrier for us. Now, are we still sinners? Yes, we are. We know it. Hopefully we sin less as we mature in our faith, but we still are sinful people. But through Christ, we've been made right with God. We're actually deemed righteous. Now, righteousness is only native to God. None of us are righteous. The Bible says no one is righteous, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But when we believe in Christ, we are, it, he imputes his righteousness to us. And so the imagery to me that's so profound is just, thinking of standing before the throne room of God and I've still got my filthy rags because I'm a sinner and those will be with me until I meet him face to face. But here I am face to face and when God looks at me, he doesn't see my filthy rags. He sees the righteous robe of Christ wrapped around me. 
that he looks at me only through the lens of Christ, and I am welcomed freely into his presence because of what Christ has done on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to provide access for me as now a daughter of the king. It's his righteousness. I'm never going to be righteous enough in and of myself. But dressed in the righteous robes of Christ, I can approach a holy God. How do you approach God? Do you, are you approaching him on the basis of what Christ has done for you to cleanse you of all sin, to prepare a way for you because you've received forgiveness through the cross? And sometimes I think we may think that's how we're approaching God, but sometimes in the back of our minds, we've also got this sort of checklist going on. You know, we think, well, I'm a nicer person than that person. I'm more honest, more truthful. I'm, I'm more religious than, than other people, so surely I must be ahead of others in how I approach God. Or you have this list, well, I, I attend church every Sunday. I go to the river even on snow nights. <laughs> I, I read my Bible. But those aren't reasons why you get to approach God. They're not, they're not what makes the sin barrier go away. What makes the sin barrier go away is Jesus and him alone. It's the cross that bridged the gap between holy God and sinful man. And all we do is believe and receive Christ as our Savior, and we get wrapped in the righteous robes of Christ, and we enter into his presence freely. And he always is attuned to us. He's got his eagle eye on us. He's watching us. He's thinking about us. He's calling to us. He wants to grow us in spiritual maturity. He wants to make us a distinct people in this world. He wants to call us to holiness. He wants to make us into his people. And that's why we become more and more like Jesus the longer that we walk with him and follow him. It's astounding. Today, the way we approach God is through faith in Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. We talk about the gospel. That is it. That all can come to be in communion with God through the Son, through Jesus Christ. I'm so glad we live on this side of the cross, aren't you? So glad we don't live pre-Jesus, where we would have had to do this whole system of sacrifices to be cleansed of our sins. Well, let's talk now about the Ten Commandments. So the Israelites are free people. They're living in the wilderness. There's no more bondage. There's no more slavery. But they don't really know how to be free. And so the Ten Commandments were more than just a set of rules. They were the beginning of a covenant relationship that God is having with his people. As he's calling them out to be special, he is also teaching them how to live as his own special people. It's important for us to understand that these Ten Commandments do not provide salvation for God's people. So these laws are not given to save them, as we would think of being saved, um, it's not possible, actually, for anyone to obey all the commandments. So if that were the case, they would all fail. But we know, as we know, Jesus was the only one who was perfect, who was able to keep all the commandments, and only he can provide salvation. But these laws were meant to actually reveal God's righteous standards. They were to show the people, actually, their need for a Savior. It's so interesting because um, think about the Ten Commandments are like a mirror, and you hold up the mirror, and you realize instantly that you're dirty, that you've got all this dust and grime and sweat, right? But you can't actually clean yourself with the mirror. It doesn't work. The mirror shows you your dirt, but it doesn't actually clean you. And so the people through the Ten Commandments are meant to learn how desperately they need to be cleansed by eventually the blood of Christ. But what's next to come in our story is the blood of the sacrifices, 
So I want to go through the Ten Commandments just briefly. And as I do, I want to take a moment just to kind of reflect what did this commandment mean for the people? And then how could it apply to us? And I want to ask you some thought-provoking questions as we go through. But I want you just not to use this as an opportunity to feel badly about all the ways that you've failed to keep the commandments. But I want to spur in you a sense of worship and gratitude that in Christ you are um, forgiven and you are welcomed and um, there's grace. But also there might be some things that stir in you as we're listening to the Lord tonight. What are some things that that you need to maybe put in order in your life? Because um, this is the commandments um, give us a good guideline for how to live our lives in the very best possible way. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But let's talk about these commandments. Commandment number one is to have no other gods. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So first of all, God is reminding Israel who he is and what he's done. He's like, I'm the Lord your God. I brought you. Do you not remember the Passover and the Red Sea and all the ways I've miraculously displayed myself as the one true God of Israel? He saved them. He's proved that to them. They were to be his witnesses to all the nations, so they were not to worship any other gods. This was critical. Let's pause and look at our own lives. Where have we placed our hope? Where have we placed our confidence? What is the center of your affection? You have probably seen God do amazing things in your own life. Is he the object of your worship? Is he the one that you most deeply love? Jesus tells us that we're to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God has given us everything. Therefore, he is worthy of our undivided allegiance. He is the only one true God. And so he demands his rightful place in our lives. He would say the same thing to us. Look at who I am and look at all I've done. Am I in the prominent place of worship in your life? Commandment number two is to have no idols. An idol is a substitute for God. It could be an image or a false representation of God. It could be something man-made that is worshipped in place of God. The Israelites have come out of Egypt where they had idols. In fact, they brought them with them, as we'll see later. Um, Idol worship was demonic in Egypt. People worshipped idols by having sex with temple prostitutes, and they also sacrificed their children on the altars of pagan gods. So this was horrible. An idol is anything that takes the place of God, and anything that we devote energy and time to or make sacrifices to in place of God. God says that he is a jealous God. I remember one time Oprah saying that she could never worship a God who calls himself a jealous God. But she doesn't understand jealousy. It's not envy. Um, it's that he's jealous for the exclusive love of his people. He, he knows what's best for us, and he knows that our misplaced passions will lead to emptiness. They're futile, and he loves us, and he wants us to rightly worship him alone. Only he can satisfy us. Can you think of other little g-gods in your life? They're sneaky. Things that, that sneak in and have a prominent place in your heart. It could be your career. It could be your family. It could be your finances, your retirement plan. It could be an activity that you love, a sport. 
It could be another person. It could be yourself. What will you do to put big G God back on the rightful throne of your life? Number three is don't misuse God's name. A name represents a person's character or their reputation. And so God's name is the greatest name in the universe. Remember, he said, I am. What's greater than I am? And it's a name that when it's spoken, it deserves honor and respect. The, he, the Jewish people would never even utter what we call Yahweh. They would never, those, that was a silent. They couldn't even speak it because he was so worthy of respect. You know, Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. He says, um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. Think about how you speak about God's name. You know, we can get in a habit of saying things like, oh, God, just kind of throwing it away or, or saying words that, you know, just diminish his name. It's something, a habit that we need to be diligent to break, that we don't use his name carelessly or casually or in vain. Will you ask God to help you if you are in the habit of doing that? Commandment number four is keep the Sabbath holy. Sabbath means rest. And so God has already been teaching his people about the Sabbath. Remember when they collected manna, they had it for six days, and on the seventh day, they had to rest. They couldn't collect it. Well, now he's making this a law. He's teaching them, this is how I want you to live. The Sabbath would be a sign to all the other nations in the world that the Israelites belong to God. And what they're doing is they're, they're um, foreshadowing his Sabbath rest on creation. The seventh day he rested. They're, not, they're imitating that. They're displaying that for the other nations to see. Now, they're also foreshadowing that when they get to the promised land, it's going to be a land of joy and rest for them. Now, we aren't mandated to follow the Sabbath anymore, but the principle of Sabbath still exists. It is good to spend one day a week resting. Um, do you have that pattern in your life? It's hard to do. When I grew up, everything was closed on Sundays. Everybody stayed home on Sundays. We live in a world now where people shop on Sundays and have sport games that uh, interfere with church attendance, and it's a completely different world, but we can still take that back. We can still create moments of rest. When we rest, we're trusting that God has all things in the palm of his hand, and we don't have to keep striving it is good for us to rest. I had a Sabbath day. Thank you, snow day. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, it's so good to continue to fight for Sabbath rest. Um, number five is honor your father and mother. Um, this is the first commandment that's associated with a promise. Honor your father and mother and you will live long in the land. So there's a result of honoring your father and mother. This is interesting because we do live in a world now where we assist the elderly with suicide, and it's legal. And I believe this is actually more than a, than a, um, a command to give rightful respect to parents or people who are in authority over us, but it's actually uh, we a call to honor our aging parents and to be patient with them and to love them and to care well for them. Um, we, do have a, we live in a society that, that idolizes youth and we blame, our, we blame our parents for pretty much everything that's wrong with us, right? Now, in Asian cultures, that's not true. Older people and parents are highly esteemed as people of great wisdom and respect. And so God is reminding us that we need to honor our, our parents. If your parents are still alive, how are you honoring them? That could be listening to them, calling them frequently, paying attention to them, being patient with them, caring for them, valuing their wisdom, caring for their needs. 
If your parents have passed away, that could be in how you speak about them to others, how you honor their reputation, how you uphold your memory of them. Number six is do not murder. So this is not a prohibition against killing because God allows killing for capital crimes, for personal defense, and in times of war. But he prohibits the taking of life that's not authorized. So murder, suicide, and abortion would be examples of that. But interestingly, the New Testament includes murderous intent in this commandment. Jesus says that when we seek to harm people, we are actually, we actually are guilty of murderous intent in our hearts. And we're guilty of actually breaking this commandment. So let's examine our hearts. Is there anger? Is there bitterness? Is there rage in your heart against someone? Confess that to the Lord. Pray about it. Lay it down and let him be the judge. Commandment number seven is do not commit adultery. The family is the basic unit of any nation. And the marriage is the contract. The marriage contract, the marriage covenant, is the foundation of a family. So if nations are made up of families and marriage is the core of the family, to commit adultery, what that does is that breaks that covenant relationship, that contract, and destroys that family unit, which we know has lasting effects generation upon generation. And so I just want to speak frankly to you because I know that in our world today, adultery is common it's common in the church. It's common outside the church. Um, we are living in a world that just tells us we're to be happy. and We're entitled to happiness. If you are right now in an inappropriate relationship or if you're tempted to be in one, I just want to urge you to flee because no good thing will come out of an adulterous relationship. I believe that adultery to marriage is like idolatry to God. It's a breaking of appropriate relationship, and it, it causes pain to so many people. The flip side of that, though, is if you've been in an adulterous relationship or you've been in a marriage where adultery has been a part of that, there is forgiveness and healing and redemption and grace. When two people come together and turn their eyes to God and trust him and obey him and believe together, there can be miraculous healing in your marriage. But marriages are hard and they need to be fought for because adultery isn't the answer. It doesn't make it any better. And if you've been a part of that. I know that in your deep of your heart, in the depth of your heart, you're agreeing with me right now because it's just painful. Number eight is do not steal. Three ways that we acquire wealth. We work for it, we inherit it, or we steal it. And stealing, God says, is wrong. And stealing can come in lots of subtle ways. It can come in like cheating on your taxes or not returning extra change at the grocery store or borrowing something and not repaying it, or not paying your bills when they're due. There are all kinds of ways in which we can steal. And what stealing does is it shows ingratitude towards God. It's, it's saying, that God, what you've given me is not enough. I need to take it from someone else. Commandment number nine is do not give false testimony. That means lying, gossiping, slandering, someone's, speaking about someone else and diminishing their reputation. It's common in social media world today. We call it bullying. It's the same thing, false testimony, saying things publicly about others that cause them great harm. We have to be careful to listen to our own words when they come out of our mouths when we're speaking about someone else, to only speak the truth in love, and to be careful about our own negative feelings that are often rooted in our feelings about ourselves, and they come out towards other people. Don't you always find that the, the people who share the same weaknesses as you are the ones you're most 
a tune to criticize. <laughs> you see yourself in them. And so we have to be careful of that. We have to watch over our own hearts. Number 10 is do not covet. Covet is, to covet is to feed an inward desire for something that doesn't belong to you. And so this is a commandment against unbridled wanting, which, interestingly, our whole economy is fueled on the idea of coveting. Advertisers tap into our desires for stuff, and they play on them so that we'll buy, so that we'll covet, so that we'll want. It's how our whole economy is run. So we have to pay attention to the desires of our heart. Do you, do you need more things to find peace and satisfaction in your life? Or are you satisfied in God alone and whatever he has provided for you? The truth is that God's laws illuminate our sin and awaken our need for a Savior. God's laws illuminate, they spotlight our sin. You know, when we go through those Ten Commandments, there's probably one or two of those where you're like, ah, I struggle with that. That's right. That's what they're there for, to say, I fall short I am a sinner, therefore I need a Savior. God's laws were originally given to God's people to teach them how to be free people in obedience to God. Their obedience wasn't for God's sake. It was for their own sake. God created his people, and he knew that living in, in light of these commandments was going to bring them the greatest peace and the greatest happiness. But he also knew they were going to fail. They were never going to be able to keep his commandments perfectly. They were sinful people, but they had to understand that they were separated in their relationship with him because he is holy and they are sinful people. Once they understood that, once it was illuminated that this, this was God's standard and they fell short, then they're going to be ready to receive the instructions for the system of sacrifices, which is going to come in our next lesson. Then they're going to understand why the blood of a lamb had to be shed to cover and provide the forgiveness for their sins. And this was going to only be temporary because all of that is going to foreshadow Christ who's to come, who's going to die once and for all for the sins of the world. It's so important that we get what God was doing with his people Israel so that we appreciate what he did in Jesus for us. But the Ten Commandments aren't just for Israel. They're for everyone. And sometimes we're tempted to think, well, the Ten Commandments, that's, that's done. That's gone. We don't need to live by those anymore. Well, yes and no, because Jesus actually simplified the Ten Commandments, and he boiled them down to two. When he was asked which of the commandments were the most important, this is what he said. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, guess what? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will have only one God, and you will worship him, and you won't use his name in vain. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't murder or covet or engage in adultery or steal or dishonor your mother and father, or any of the others. All of the ten are wrapped into the two. And so if we just love God well and love each other well, we will be walking in the greatest uh, opportunity we have for, for pleasing God and living life the way we were created to live life. Are you loving God in this way? 
Is this how you're experiencing your relationship with God as you are thinking about these 10 things? Are you finding there's something stirring in your heart and you're just asking the Lord, how can I bring myself into greater harmony with you, Lord? What is he saying to your heart tonight? Will you pray and ask to hear his clear instructions for you? I just want to end by reading the last part of chapter 20 because it's such a powerful image of God's holiness and how his people responded. It starts in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're saying, don't let God speak to us or we're going to die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Do you hear what Moses said? He said that God was testing them so that the fear of God would be with them and keep them from sinning. An appropriate reverence for God is a great deterrent to sin. And when we, when we hear God speak, when we listen to his instructions, it not only produces reverence in us for who God is, but it also convicts us of sin, and then it points us right to Jesus, where we say, thank you, Lord, that we are forgiven, that we have grace that we're recipients of your mercy, that we're welcomed into your presence, that you see us through the righteous robes of Christ, that you speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you forgive us time and time again, and you guide our lives day by day, and we walk in relationship with you. Not a relationship that's separated anymore, but a relationship that's hand in hand, step by step. This is the good news of the gospel, that we get to live in relationship with Christ. Let's pray about that. Father, we're so thankful for what you're teaching us about your holiness, about your majesty, about your power. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be at the base of that mountain, to see the fire and the smoke, feel the the shaking, the lightning and the thunder. And Lord, it would have been scary and it would have been hard to be separated, to know that if I even touched the mountain, I would die. And Lord, I'm so grateful that for all of us tonight, because we believe in Jesus, we are welcomed into your presence. We can come running into your arms that you are eager for us to pray, for us to ask of you, to listen to your voice. You are graciously and lovingly forgiving us for our sin and continuing to grow us up in spiritual maturity. And Lord, we're so grateful. Thank you, Lord, for how much you love us. Thank you for what you're teaching us about yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.